Well, we're in a series uh, where we're looking at the Gospel of Luke through the lens of Jesus' Jubilee announcement. So we're in week three. And the first week, uh, we looked at this, this ministry announcement that Jesus makes in Luke chapter four, where he says, I've come, I'm anointed to preach good news to the poor to free the oppressed, and to open the eyes of the blind. It's this beautiful announcement that comes from Isaiah, and it's this jubilee dream that uh, we are invited to dream, this cosmic jubilee of release. Uh, but there's a challenge to people like me, if I, if I listen to this, this dream, and like many of us, because I'm not poor, I'm not blind, and I don't really know that I'm that oppressed either. And so there's a challenge because I tend to keep God at a bit of arm's length, like the people in that passage, through a critical spirit. And I have other dreams of my own that get in the way of me actually dreaming the Jubilee dream together. So there's always this invitation but this challenge. And then last week we looked at a passage from Luke 7 where Jesus uh, has an interaction with a Pharisee and then a woman who's called a sinner. And uh, she's socially poor, she's spiritually outcast. But she's freed and then she's spiritually included by Jesus. And again, in Jesus' words, she's, she's forgiven or she loves much because she's forgiven much. And so she shows this deep love for God and how she acts with him. And also in a startling turn, she shows this amazing love for her neighbor, this guy Simon the Pharisee, who would be a person involved in shaming her. And so again, there's this deep challenge to us. Are we willing to orient ourselves to see how much we've been forgiven through confession and repentance in God's word, with God's word and God's people, and also to see that we have this deep need not just to be forgiven, but for actually a new heart and a new life. So it follows the same pattern. And today we're going to see the same thing, that Jesus is going to come in this passage. He's going to make this announcement to people who are oppressed, to people who are poor, who people who are in need. And then there's going to be a challenge to those of us that are here today. So let's take a look at the passage. It's uh, in Luke 4, and it's starting right after Jesus makes his jubilee announcement. So starting in verse 31. Then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, the town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them all. And they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out in every place in the vicinity. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house, And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each one of them, and he healed them. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. This is God's word. So, in this passage, yeah, some, some fun looks on the faces of the people. Hey, welcome to Sunday. Welcome to this passage. So, we see Jesus uh, performing two jubilee acts here, and he performs each of them twice. 
So, first we see him casting out demons. He does it once in the synagogue. And then at the end of the passage, it says the demons were coming out of lots of people. And then he performs a second set of miracles where he's healing the sick. He heals a person, Simon's mother-in-law. And then at the end of the, at the passage, again, it says that he's healing all of these different people. Now, on the surface, it's really easy to see how this is a fulfillment of Jesus' jubilee ministry. There's people who are sick. There's people who are oppressed. And they're becoming freed. That part of the sermon, actually, and the part of the passage is, is super simple. I think the real big question for us is, like, how does this apply to us in any way, shape, or form today? That's the part I think that's hard for us to know. And so um, here's my thesis. I, I don't usually do this, but I'm just going to write it. I wrote it down up here, and so you can see it. And, and here's where we're going today. So I believe that we should listen to and practice the best of science, psychology, medicine, and psychiatry. So these are gifts from God, and I actually think that they're ways that we participate with God in his good work in the world. But at the same time, I think Jesus healed physically and cast out demons in this passage, in his time, and I actually think he wants to do the same thing today. I think he wants to do the same thing today. Now, this is the statement that I'm making, and I know there's several different reactions that happen in in the community when I hear this. On one hand, there's some of you who are like, let's go, baby. Let's do this. I've been waiting. I have my anointing oil in my pocket. I've been bringing it every Sunday, and I am ready to get the party started, okay? Um, or maybe some of you, you just grew up in a place where, you know, this, this kind of language that's used in this passage about a spiritual world is just not foreign to you at all. Maybe that's part of your upbringing, part of your culture. But then there's a lot of the rest of us, which is just, we just feel like a deep uncomfort, discomfort with this passage, and this ideas that are expressed in this passage. And, um, you know, maybe you're just a deeply skeptical person. And you're like, you know, I, I hear that things like this happen. I read this in the Bible, but, like, show me the money. I, I don't know that this actually happens. I've never seen it before in my own life. And I'm sure that people believe this 2,000 years ago. Like, sure, whatever. But I don't see this happening today. Or maybe you came out of a charismatic background yourself, a charismatic church background, and you experienced the good of people talking and thinking about, you know, uh, the spiritual world all the time, but maybe you've also experienced the bad of that or the excess of that. Or you just are afraid that if I start, you know, talking about passages like this, the next week I'm going to show up with, like, slick back hair and a white suit and, like, some water that I'm trying to sell you that, that will, as fun as that would be. Um, but there's this fear, right, that, that comes around this as well. So we have a lot of different reactions in the, in the community. And maybe I didn't describe how you feel very well, but I just want to acknowledge that there's different reactions that we have when we read a passage like this. And that's great, and that's fine. And, and no matter what your reaction is, whether I described it or not, you're welcome here. And I think there's an invitation and a challenge for us from this passage. So let's look at it a little more closely and see if it might have something to say, not only to people back then, but to us here today. So, one of the first things we need to do is understand the difference between the people in the ancient Near East that were written to 2,000 years ago that were experiencing this and us today. So I want to break down what's happening in this passage like this. So, there's two, again, two things that are happening. So the first is that there's people who are sick, and then Jesus heals them. And then there's people who are demon-possessed, and Jesus casts the demons out, okay? And you're like, this guy's good. This is what I spend all my week doing, uh, is these kinds of things. But here, we need to look at this passage a little bit deeper or understand this. So in the first one, we have actually quite a bit in common with our ancient Near Eastern ancestors. We know that there are people, we know that people get sick, and we want people to get healed. The question is just, how do they get healed? And so, you know, back then, 
uh, as of today, that people would use medicine. So maybe for us, it's Tylenol, cold, and flu. Maybe for them, it was some sort of herb poultice or something that your Chinese grandma will give you that you're supposed to be using. Um, And again, I want to say, this is not an anti-science or anti-medicine sermon. That's not at all where I'm going. This is one of the ways that people get healed. For me, the issue isn't about what science can do. It's about what we think Jesus can't do. And there, we're actually quite similar to the the first people who who were reading this, or the people who experienced this. The big question is, like, could Jesus actually heal? That's the question. And so we're on a similar path and a page. But for the second one, there's a lot more discrepancy between us and our ancient Near Eastern neighbors. So they, again, would believe that there are people who are demon-possessed, and those demons need to be cast out. That just, no one seems shocked by that idea. The big question is, does Jesus have the power to do that? Somebody needs to do it, something needs to do it, someone needs to do it. Who can do it is the question. For us, we are in a different spot, where it's like when we look at this, this is basically all we can say. We agree that there are people, and then the rest, we're kind of like, I don't really know, <laughs> you know, I'm not really sure about any of the rest of us, right? Um, and it all sounds like Harry Potter to, to us, probably, which is awesome, but not real. Um, it is not real, by the way, Harry Potter, just so you know. Um, no matter how much Quidditch you play, those, those, uh, those, those uh, brooms don't fly. Um, so you could say, like, I believe they believe there were demons. I believe they were, like, truly honest about all of that. Okay? But I don't think that that's really the way the world works. And I'll just be, I'll play my cards here. I would include myself in that group. Okay? My normal disposition when I see something, someone acting odd, I'm not like, oh, there's probably a demon that needs to be cast out. Okay? That's just not the way that my mind works. I'm right there with you. So what we need to do is just get a little bit closer so that we can understand their world. And, and then also, like I said, if the, part of the invitation is to be challenged by what's happening here and invited into the story, we just kind of need to close the gap or at least understand how they, how they saw the world. So uh, let's, let me try to give a quick explanation. In our first sermon in this series, I talked about this idea that in, in Genesis 1, the first part of the Bible, we see God creating the world. So the world actually starts in a place of disorder and chaos and darkness. And what happens in Genesis 1 is that through God's word, he creates this world that we live in. So this place of order, a place of light, a place of potentiality. But we see later on in the story that sin reverses the arrow. So it goes back the other way. We move from order back to disorder. We move from light to darkness. This is what Jesus is saying. There's people who are blind who need to be freed. So the question is, like, in this middle section, what is sin? And I think there's five different levels of sin. And there's no, like, passage that says that. It's not like Romans 8, 16 is this. There are five levels of sin. It's just like, this is the way that I understand what the Bible to be saying, okay? That it works out in my mind. So here's the first four. So there's personal sin. There's communal sin, or like, you can call it family sin. There's systemic sin, And then there's humanity-wide sin. So let me just give you an example of what this means. Last week, we looked at this passage. This woman is called a sinner. So we probably think that she made some poor choices as a person, like all of us have. And that contributes to the sin in the world, that things are moving from order to chaos. But then there's also probably levels of familiar sin or communal sin. Imagine that her dad... Uh, had died or had divorced her mom. Back at that time, there was not really a lot of support for people who are widows. So um, imagine that her mom needs to join a brothel in order to make ends meet, just to survive, and she becomes an alcoholic. 
then that will then that girl if she if she grows up in that environment the likelihood of her engaging in those things as she grows up is much higher that's just what she sees that's what her role models do and so we can see there's familial levels of sin that happen in the world. And then again, in, in the next uh, level up, when we look at like systemic issues, we talked about this, that, that in the reference to Isaiah 58 that Jesus makes in his Jubilee sermon, he's saying that there are people who have not installed the year of Jubilee. God has given us this invitation for a year of Jubilee, and nobody has ever made it happen. And that causes systemic sin. It causes systemic injustice that keeps people... Uh, Enslaved, And then finally, we close the sermon by saying that this invitation of the Bible is not just for us to deal with our personal sin, but actually this invitation that we need new hearts. That's what Moses says at the end of Deuteronomy. There's just something in us. Even though we have a blueprint for Jubilee, it's laid out. We know how to do it. We just don't get to it. There's something wrong with us as people that we don't go that, that, to that place ourselves. And so these are the four levels that the Bible talks about. And I think regardless of if you're a follower of Jesus here or not, you, you probably can agree at some level that this is true, that there, there are different levels of brokenness in our world that we can observe. These are visible and we've experienced them in our own lives. But the Bible adds another level above this, a spiritual evil, we can call it. Or the Bible has many different names for it, powers and principalities, uh, dark force, demons, our characters in there, or unclean spirits, as Luke will often say, and then there's a leader which has many different names, maybe called, we'll call it the Satan for now. And so there's lots that we could say about this realm, but let me just say five quick things to try to summarize what I think the Bible says. The first is this. Most of what we believe and understand about this realm is actually not parallel, doesn't run, run parallel to what the Bible says. It's more informed by, like, pop culture or extra-biblical things. It's more informed by, like, reading Dante's Inferno or watching Little Nicky or something like that. That's actually where we, a lot of our ideas come from, which is not what the Bible is actually trying to say. So here's what I think the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that there's a spiritual realm that exists on a different plane than human existence. A spiritual realm that exists on a different plane than human existence. And in, in one hand, there's this benevolent God in this plane, who, who comes in the person of Jesus, he enters into our world and is present in our world currently in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this God, this spiritual force, is working to free, to save, to create shalom. That's what the Bible says. But there's also this other force, this dark force, run by this cosmic tyrant. And it's working in exactly the opposite direction. It wants to oppress, to kill, to spread hate, rather than love and shalom. So in this spiritual realm, the spirits are actually trying to make their home here in our world in some way, shape, or form. So you can say that in, in, the, in the old language, it'd be like they're trying to build a kingdom here. That's how the Bible talks about it, because that was their way of thinking about the world. And so there is this idea that heaven can come to earth. That's what Jesus is inviting us to dream, is this jubilee, this cosmic jubilee dream where heaven may come to earth. That's what he invites us to pray. But the opposite can also be true that we can create instead hell on earth, that it's dragging us back down to this level of chaos, of darkness. Both of them are trying to create kingdoms here. Fourth, or sorry, yeah, that's fourth. The Bible is saying that there's a two-way relationship between the spiritual forces and humanity. So they act on us, and we also act on them. We, there's like a, it's, you can think of it like a big circle, that they exert influence here, but we also can empower them in a way. So this is what Michael Crossman says. Humans, human agents sin, so we sin, 
And from these sins, sin with a big S emerges. Sin, he calls it as a superorganism. You can think about it that way. And then sin, big S sin, as an agent, works back down on humans to precipitate more sin and sinning. So there's this like cyclical way that this dark force works in the world. And then finally, these spiritual forces are more powerful than humans, and they're active in the human realm at all of these levels. So sin works at all of those different levels. This is what Tim Mackey, co-founder of the Bible Project, says. Demons, are, which is what we see in this passage, they're spiritual forces at work behind corrupt human power structures. So on the highest level, on the systemic level, but also they're at work on the personal level, animating and exploiting humanity's greed and selfishness and just taking advantage of the weakness of our bodies. So they're work, at work in systemic and on personal levels in active sinning as we enable their work in the world, but also just in the weakness that we have as people, that we're weaker than them. And that's, the, that's what's happening in this story. There's no sense that these people who are demon-possessed or who are sick, that they've actively sinned, and therefore that's what's going on in their lives. They're just acted on by these dark forces. So for me, this is a summary of what the Bible says. Now, you may completely disagree. And uh, that's totally fine, or you might just be really, really skeptical. And you're welcome here, and I'd love to have a further conversation with you, okay? But I just want to give you three things that are food for thought uh, for, for you. And the first two are for just everybody, and then the last one is specifically for those of us who would, fo- would call ourselves followers of Jesus today. So three things that I think I, I want to just give you some food for thought of why you should consider this. Number one, you may not believe in the spiritual evil, in spiritual evil, this idea but almost all of us act as if there is this ultimate force of evil in our world. So even if you believe in it or you don't believe in it, we still act as if this is true. Listen to what Fred Craddock says. He's a a theologian that I've been reading in preparation for this series. He says, All of this idea about spiritual evil may seem very primitive to an enlightened modern, but we have not, by the announcement that we do not believe in demons, reduced one whit the amount of personal and corporate evil in the world. Just by saying we don't believe in the devil doesn't mean there's not less darkness in our world. The names of the enemies have been changed, he says, but the battle rages on. The names of the enemies have been changed. And so what I I think he's saying, and what I want to pick up on, is that we still will assign ultimate blame to something or someone. We're going to see the darkness in the world, the problems in our world, and we're going to say someone is ultimately, or something is ultimately responsible And here's what I think will happen. If we take away the spiritual option, then all we're left with is these four. And here's my hot take on how I think this works out. If you're a more conservative person, this is basically what you do. You're like, you know what the problem is? It's personal sin. People make choices, bad choices, and that's why the world is is broken. And so the answer is, we all just need to read Jordan Peterson, make our beds, be like the lobster, dot, 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 right? That's the idea, the general idea there. Liberal people do the opposite. They say, oh, no, it's not personal evil that's actually at the source of the problem of the world. The problem is is systemic. People are ultimately victims. And therefore, the devil, the evil, the Satan, is the 1%. It's the people behind these systems in the world. And so we we all, or the Bible and I, I would say, we actually agree that there's some truth to what is being said said from both of these positions. But here's the problem, that we're making people ultimately the devil. 
We've been reducing it down to the human level of sin. Without a spiritual dark force to blame for ultimate evil and injustice in the world, we'll take all the weight of the problems and the darkness which we see in the world and we'll actually blame someone. Ourselves, or more often, somebody else. And the Bible is super, super clear. When we do that, it will just create, in more, or create more chaos and darkness and polarization in the world. And so maybe it's best said by the, the early 2000s movie, The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And when we do that, we're left with dehumanizing and making other people the source of all evil. The second thing here is this. It's fine to believe that the spiritual realm is not real, but to say that that's the ultimate truth and that that's true everywhere at all times and that, and that it has no place in seeing people come, the spiritual realm has no place in seeing people come to physical and mental health, is at its root paternalistic, colonialist, classist, and racist. And you're like, that's all the ists. It's a very strong statement. So let me try to say, uh, prove what I'm saying. And, and actually, I'm not going to try to do it myself. I'm going to enlist somebody else. So I just finished reading this really great book. I finished it yesterday. It's called Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and Stories That Make Us. And it's written by this woman. Her name is Rachel Aviv. She's a, a, unbelievable writer. This is a really good book. And she's not a Christian, but she's a person who's experienced mental illness. And she was helped by psychology and psychiatry. But at the same time, she felt like the way that they looked at her and talked about her was an incomplete picture of the condition that she had. Even talking about it, she says, as mental health only, makes it sound like it's only here and not part of a bigger story that she's a part of. So she felt it was an incomplete recognition of the problem that she had, who she was as a person, and also what the solutions might be. And she felt, I think you could say, slightly dehumanized by the process. And so she wrote this book. Here's what she says about her book. Although a purely psychiatric model of the mind may be essential to the survival of people with mental illness, she's not against psychiatry, and neither am I. The title of this book, Strangers to Ourselves, is a reminder that this framework may also estrange us from the many scales of understanding required, especially in periods of crisis or illness, to maintain a continuous sense of self. She's saying that there's more to the story, at least to her story, than just that her brain chemistry was slightly off. And in her book, she narrates beautifully the stories of her, her own story, but then the stories of many other people. And I want to point, just talk about two of them really quickly, because they're from women of color who were, again, they were helped by pharmaceuticals, but they also had an awareness of the spiritual realm of their lives, which could both harm them and help them. And so one is an African-American woman with psychosis named Naomi. And she says part of the problem was that she was being treated in her treatment as if she was just another, she uses the words, middle-class white male. And she's not against middle-class white males, but she's, that's just not who she is. She's a poor black woman with a history of trauma and who also sees the world through a culture of a spiritual lens. It's a very different story and a very different picture. And when she, that is not brought in, all that history of who she is, including spirituality, she says it's like it's, it's an incomplete picture of who she is and doesn't help in her recovery and her health. The, another woman is an Indian woman with schizophrenia named Bapu. And she needed to be medicated 
So medication is part of her healing, and it also didn't work for her at certain points in time. But the spiritual realm is really, really important to her story. And again, the same thing. At times, the spiritual realm did not help. It sent her down a dark path. But other times, it helped her to recover. This is what uh, um, um, Rachel writes, Aviv writes, in, in the chapter dedicated to Bapu's story. She says, psychiatrists from the National Institute of Mental Health and Neuroscience published an article in the British Medical Journal that found that people with psychotic disorders improved significantly after staying at a Hindu healing temple where residents spent their days praying and doing light chores, engaged in that spiritual element of their lives. The psychiatrists endorsed the benefits of a culturally valued refuge for people with severe mental illness as long as there was no coercion or restraint. They said, we should welcome rather than fear misuse of evidence that psychopharmacological and neurophysiological frameworks are not the only ones pertinent to effective psychiatric practice. There's more to the story, including the spiritual part of the story. Now again, I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying that anytime everybody get, someone gets a cold, that it's the devil. That's not what I'm trying to say, or that we should stop our scientific exploration of the world or of disease. What I'm trying to say, and I think what she's trying to say, is that to deny that the spiritual dimension, to deny that outright, does not honor the stories of these women. Or the worldview of the vast majority of the people in history, or in fact the worldview of the vast majority of the people in the world today. And that's why I say it's a colonizing and racist perspective is because we're taking our story and the way that we view the world as modern, enlightened Western people, which is not wrong, but we're saying that everyone else has to bow to that. And it's not helpful. And again, I actually don't think it's just non-Christians who do this. I know that I do this. I don't know if any of you guys get letters from missionaries and people in other parts of the world. And you hear these stories of like miracles happening in Asia or sub-Saharan Africa, and we're like, oh, that's so good that God can act in those places in that way but he'll never do that here. That's kind of the subtext. It's the same idea. It's the same perspective. We're looking down our nose at those people and the work of God in their midst. And so here's what what I think. If we're to open ourselves to the stories of people like Bapu and Naomi and of Christians who are living in favelas in South America and old stories like we have read in Luke chapter 4, then we actually might be able to live into what our greatest values are as Canadians, which is people who are actually tolerant, who are globally aware, and who are open, open to new experiences, even though they might be uncomfortable for us. And I think they may actually enrich our world, our understanding of the world, and also God's work in it, and help us, as Rachel Aviv does in her wonderful book, to actually hear people's stories on their own terms and not try to shoehorn them into our own perspectives. So those are the first two challenges or food for thought that I wanted to give us. But the last one is specifically for those of us who are Christians. And uh, so here I'm just going to be super um, super honest with you. And uh, somebody told me uh, a couple weeks ago when I said this, they're like, don't say you're going to be super honest with us because it sounds like you're being super dishonest with us the rest of the time. So let me just be very personal uh, with you. When I read this passage, I actually, it makes me very uncomfortable. I am personally uncomfortable with this kind of talk. And it's not part of my worldview. 
It's not part of my upbringing. It's not part of my spiritual experience in many ways. Like I've experienced what I would call some, um, some miracles in my life, but it's not like something I experience every day or very often or something that I think of. And I'm not really someone who I would say is spiritually sensitive. And my wife would just say, you could just take spiritually right out of that sentence. I'm just not someone who's sensitive in any way, shape, or form. But this idea, I just don't get it. Like, monks, I get monks. I get why someone would become a monk. I would sometimes like to become a monk. The faith healings, not so much. It's just a foreign language to me and a foreign idea, and it makes me really uncomfortable. But here's how I'm challenged by this passage and why I want to include it for me to walk through this week, but also for us. Is First of all, it's in the story of God. It's in here, and, and it's not only in this passage, but if you read through the Gospel of Luke again and again and again and again and again and again. And so it's, it's, Luke is trying to get us to deal with this question. And Luke tells us that there's a dark spiritual force that's impress, uh, oppressing and enslaving people in this world, and he says the opposite too, that there's a loving and benevolent force that's at work for good in the world. Just before this passage, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit comes on him. And when he makes his announcement in in Luke chapter 4, that's what he says, the Spirit of God is on me. It's through the spiritual power that God does his work. And so I think we need to be open to both sides. If we want to have the Spirit at work, at least I do, then I need to explore and at least be open to this other side of the equation. And and here's the other thing. I really, really want to believe. I want to believe that, that this kind of thing is possible. That people can be healed that people who are oppressed can be freed, that, that even places in my own life can move, have the potential to move from darkness to light by the power of God's Spirit. And so I long to see people freed from oppression. I long to pray with you for healing and freedom and release and forgiveness. I want to pray that for me. I want you to pray for me. I want to pray it for you, and I want to pray it for those of you in your life. And I know for, for many of us, this isn't like a you know, this, this passage is a real live situation. There are people that you're praying for in your life that need healing. And if that's true, and we want to pray for these people, then I think we need to be, as much as it might make us uncomfortable, we need to be open to something in the spiritual realm, to exploring something there. And I've, like I said, I've experienced a few things in this area of my life, and I, I do want more at this stage. But here is where I stiff-arm this idea a little bit, where I put distance between myself and this idea. There's two reasons why. The first is that I'm really afraid that if we open this door, that God won't show up. Just being dead honest with you. That if I, and this is my wrestle through preaching, preparing to preach this this week. If I bring this topic up and we start to pray for people in our lives and we just start to hope, that door of hope gets open for us, for these people, for ourselves, that we'll pray, we'll get together, and we'll, we'll hope and as Sofiane Stevens sings, we'll, we'll get together, he says, Tuesday night at the Bible study, we'll lift our arms and pray over your body and nothing will happen. That God won't show up in the ways that we hope and that we pray for in the people of our lives. And I think about the pain that you would feel and the letdown that you would feel. And as a pastor preaching the sermon, I know that I would have opened up that door for you. And so, I'm, I'm just being honest, I, I'm afraid that taking this seriously, that God won't show up. But the other thing that I'm afraid of is exactly the opposite, actually, which is that God will show up. And you're like, you're a confused young man. Like, which, pick a side here. 
You're like, wouldn't it be amazing if God shows up? Isn't that like the better option? Well, maybe. But what happens in this passage is that, it, you know, we think if God shows up, it'd be amazing. And that's exactly what people experience. It says the people were all amazed. And so we think of that like fireworks. It's like, oh, we watch fireworks. like, oh, amazing. Or like the good end to a movie where we're like, amazing. I feel really good. That's actually not what this word means. The word here is translated as like blown off course or completely stricken with panic or shock or completely overwhelmed. That's what they experience. And that's what we experience when God shows up. The demons have the same reaction. Look what they say. Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And you think, oh yeah, that's the demons. Every time God shows up, this is the reaction of people. In Isaiah 6, this is the reaction that he has when he comes face to face with God. Oh, fill in the blank. Four-letter word there, whatever you want. Oh, fix auto. Right? That's what goes there. And that's my translation. Most of you guys don't have never seen that commercial. Okay, well, um, strike that from the record. Um, Isaiah is basically saying, like, it's game over for me. It's curtains. Okay? You may not like any of my translations. So here's how uh, Eugene Peterson translates that passage. It's doomsday for me. It's doomsday when God shows up, when he actually shows up in my presence. Because if this person is actually God who shows up in this passage, in our midst, then it will mess with our entire world. That's why Jesus says it's good news for the poor. Because the poor, their world, they're like, yeah, my world sucks. Come mess with it. It's not very good to start with. I'd like it messed with. I'd like to be blown off course. It's different for those of us who are here whose lives are actually kind of on course. If that's the invitation, it's not generally good news for us. If our lives are more like a mech catalog or a kinfolk magazine or whatever it is, if Jesus is going to come and mess with them and he actually shows up, it will be doomsday for those dreams. If we experience someone who is miraculous and powerful in our midst, it means that God has shown up and it's not playtime anymore. It's not just, should I come to church? It's a whole different presence in our lives. And so for me, actually, both situations aren't super great. Because the problem is, is the same, and it's actually fundamentally very, very simple. That God is God, or Jesus is God, which means he's powerful, and he's also the one in control, which means that I'm not. That's what either option means. I don't get to point his power in a certain direction. His power doesn't work like a fire hose. If he's God, ultimately, he will act where and when and on whom he wants And I don't get a choice in that matter if he's ultimately God. I don't get to choose when he will heal people. That's at the heart of the passage for next week that my friend Talisi is going to come preach, the timing of God. And I don't get to sit in the control tower of my life singing Jesus take the wheel anymore. That's not the way that it works. If he's in control of everything, that means he's in control of my life. And he's going to come and he's going to blow it off course. He's going to mess with me. And he's going to mess with you. So you might be thinking, well, this is a fun sermon. Thanks, Barnabas. I'm so encouraged. What's the call for us? Let me just end here. What are we supposed to do? There's just two things I want to invite us to in this passage this morning. The first is, is to believe. So on one hand, it's to believe that there is a spiritual realm. And there's a God who's powerful and able to act today. But I think behind that for us, 
is actually, it's to believe that God is good. That he's good. Because good is an interesting word. Good only fits within a story. It means that I have a vision of something that's going to happen, and God is good if he helps me get there. And when I think of a story, I think of, of, of no better place that this is captured than in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a character, you know, in that story, Aslan the lion is the god figure. And there's a character who says, you know, is he safe? Is Aslan safe? And Miss Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that is a fundamental distinction at the heart of this passage and for each of us. Because I think for many of us, our ideas of God being good align with him being safe for us. That he'll be safe, that he'll be good for our stories, good for our dreams, that we'll be able to maintain control in some way. And God will help us out. But to believe in this Jesus and to believe in this jubilee dream and this jubilee story is fundamentally unsafe. But it is good. One second, Joel. It's to believe that Jesus, who is God and has all the power, the one who died with, or cried with his friends before he healed, that he is fundamentally good, which means that he knows how we feel. That the Jesus who walks willingly into pain and suffering and death, that that Jesus is good. And that means if we and the people we know and love experience those things, that he could be good in that time. And that the Jesus who has risen again ultimately provides us a hope. It says in the Bible that one day all of our prayers for healing will be answered, that every tear will be dried, that the tree of life, that the leaves of the tree of life will be used for the healing of the world. And this is the audacious hope and the dream, not only of Jubilee, but of the resurrection of Jesus. And so this, this is the promise, and, and this is the invitation that we have, is to believe in that story, that God is good, but not necessarily safe for us. And the second thing to do I want to point out is to beg that we come and we beg. That we believe and we beg. We beg our king to free people. To open eyes, to heal, to show his spiritual power here and now. Ultimately, we know that that will happen. But that God actually in some way would do that today. In the lives of the people that we love. With our friends, with our family members. And I deliberately use the word here, beg, instead of, of pray. Because begging is the position of somebody who's poor. And that's what we're invited to do through this passage, is to become people who are poor and come and beg our king. That's the privilege that Jesus has brought us, is to come before him and to petition our king, not only by ourselves, but with each other. And that's part of what it means to be in the family of God, that we ask our friends to come and beg with us, that our king may act now. I said earlier, according to the Bible, our lives will, will enable one kingdom or the other. The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. You know, which, which will your life enable? Which kind of spiritual power in this world? The benevolent love of, of King Jesus, the healing power of Jesus, or the dark forces of the world? And if Jubilee is a cosmic dream, like which dream will you, will you dream? The small dreams for your own life Or will you have the audacity to dream this cosmic dream of Jubilee with Jesus? Let's pray to close. God, this is a very challenging passage for me and I'm sure for many of us. But we want to step into what you have for us and into how you see the world. 
So we thank you for all of the medical advancements and the scientific advancements that have happened since this passage. We thank you for how your people, many people, have sacrificed for those advancements and how we've learned so much about the world that you've made and, and the healing that you can bring through those things. But we also want to be people who pray for your power to be unleashed, that you would heal the sick, that you would lift up the broken, that you would free the oppressed, that your power would be shown in our midst. And so for me, as, as weird and as dangerous as that is to pray, I do pray it. I pray it for myself. I pray it for this community. Not just that we would be able to have our strength, face, uh, our, our faith strengthened, which is, which is awesome, and I'd love for that to happen, but also that we would see others in this world would see your power at work through this community. They would see the power of the Holy Spirit freeing people bringing sight to the blind, and that they would turn to you, the king of the world, and start to partner with you to unleash shalom in this world. So that's our prayer. As we respond now, we invite you to make yourself known in this time, and that we would align ourselves with your dream and your story. So we pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.